Grace, mercy, and peace be unto you from God, our Father, and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. The text for this meditation is from the Gospel lesson read a few moments ago. Please join me in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. There seems to be a great identity crisis in our world today with people asking the question, who am I? Who am I? In today's world, we put so much stress on our identity, who we are, and we often respond with a question like that by telling the person what we do for a living In our society, that oftentimes seems the most important. And some go through great lengths to embellish their title or glamorize or promote who they are. Like a student who has all the answers in a classroom, when Jesus asks the question, Who do you say that I am? Peter eagerly confesses, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Bingo! Jesus is, as Peter confesses, he is the anointed one, the Messiah, the living God. He is the fulfillment of all God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God in the flesh. Do you agree with Peter? Of course you do. And thanks be to God, literally, thanks be to God. After all, Peter and all of you and I didn't come up with this answer on our own. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. It's a divine miracle that anyone, including Peter, confesses Jesus as Lord. So too with you. Blessed are you, Simon, son of John. My Father in heaven has revealed this answer to you. And Peter, don't you dare to take credit for your answer. And you and I better not either. On your own, you'd never be able to confess Jesus as the Christ, as the Son of God. Martin Luther in his small catechism gets it right. You remember, I believe that I cannot by my own reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ, my Lord, or come to him or confess him. St. Paul tells the church in Corinth, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And as Paul teaches us in Romans 10, chapter 17, faith comes by hearing the Holy Spirit-filled word. Again, it's a divine miracle. Now tonight, I want you to note how the church is built and how the church grows. Jesus promises to build his church on the truth, the biblical content of Peter's confession, not on Peter's personality and not on Peter's person. This is absolutely huge. There's nothing solid about Peter at all. The church is not some personality cult of Peter or any other preacher whether pope or bishop or pastor or TV evangelist. Learn well from this. If you come to a church only because of a pastor's person or his personality, you will be sorely disappointed and distraught. 
After all, Peter the Confessor will soon become Satan's spokesman. You'll hear about that next week. And later on, Peter sleeps in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus is arrested, and he pulls off a triple denial with oaths and curses, denying that he knows Jesus. You can't build the church on Peter, and I don't care what anybody else says. A church built on Peter would be a spiritual disaster, an idol's temple. Instead, the church is built on the rock of Peter's biblical and faithful confession, Jesus. Peter, as confessor, doesn't point to himself, but he points to Jesus. And you can't be more rock-solid than the crucified and risen Jesus, and even the gates of hell cannot prevail such a biblical confession. A house is only as sturdy as the foundation which it rests. Those who live in the shaky San Andreas Fault of California know a little bit about this. The hidden strength of the church is her foundation. Jesus, crucified. Jesus, risen from the dead. The church is not, her foundation is not in her glorious cathedrals, even as beautiful as this church is. It is not built on her splendid liturgies. Nor is it built on her stage praise bands with her eye candy vocalists and backup singers, let alone the hole in the jeans t shirt, five o'clock shadow, people magnet pastor. The muscle of the church does not consist in her high churchly, incense swinging, chanting clergy. The vitality and vigor of the church is not in her supposed political and cultural influence or even in her supposed statistics. The church's hidden strength, and I want you to listen, is that she is built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles with Christ, the rejected rock, as her cornerstone. And she is bolted to this rock-solid foundation through faith that confesses Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, Peter didn't realize what all those words meant this day. You remember? When Jesus preached that he is the Christ and must intensely suffer and die a humiliating and disgraceful death and then gloriously rise on the third day, Peter pulls Jesus aside out to the verbal woodshed. With my tongue firmly planted in my cheek, Pope Peter I infallibly issues his first encyclical that went like this. You're wrong, Jesus. Dead wrong. Pardon the pun. I categorically and absolutely forbid it. Suffering and death and resurrection cannot and will not happen to you, Jesus. It's unthinkable, inconceivable. And since you are the Christ, this will never, ever happen to you. Do you get it? Suffering, death, and resurrection was not a part of the deal when Peter declared, you are the Christ. For Peter, God's almighty power meant an anointed warrior, the divine terminator, the conqueror, who would bring Israel back on the map to its political height. And that totally excluded suffering and death.
However, to confess Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, is to confess Jesus as Christ crucified. There is no other Jesus. There is no other way for him to be the Christ than by dying on that cross and rising again from the dead. This is the only way that death is defeated, sin is paid for, life restored. By his death on the cross, once and for all people, for all time. And those who would flatter Jesus with pious titles, but refuse his bloody, all-atoning, sacrificial death, are on shaky ground. As I hinted at it before, Peter became Satan's spokesman, and Jesus said to him, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. So if you're picking up what I'm throwing down here tonight, you either speak for Christ or against him. If you speak against Christ, you're an antichrist. There is no comfortable middle way. There is no neutral ground. There are no happy agnostics. Gee, I just don't know. There's no place to run and hide when Jesus asks you, who do you say that I am? Either Jesus is Lord or he isn't. Either Jesus is the Messiah or he isn't. Either he is the Son of the living God or he isn't. And either the church proclaims Jesus and him crucified and risen from the dead for the life of the world, or it's a synagogue of Satan. On this rock of Peter's confession, where Jesus is proclaimed Christ the Son of God, there the keys of the kingdom of heaven are found. Now, keys are authority. Keys have the authority to open and shut. It's a huge thing to have keys. When you take ownership of a home or a car, you get a set of keys. When you entrust someone with your house or your property when you go on vacation, you give them the keys. Oh, I remember the first time I got my set of keys for my 1977 Buick LeSabre. Freedom! Permission! What are the kids always asking for? Dad, can I have the... No, not the car. The keys. Imagine then, having the keys of heaven? A key that unlocks heaven's doors? In the text, Jesus promises the keys to Peter and to all people. Would you? Jesus does. Not to make him a bishop or a pope, but to make him a preacher, a confessor, a servant. And Jesus says to him, The things that you bind or lock on earth shall be locked in heaven, and the things that you unlock on earth shall be, shall be loosed or unlocked in heaven. You don't have to search for the keys to heaven like some misplaced set of car keys stuck in your pants pocket someplace or in a drawer. You don't need to ask, God, where did you put those keys? The keys are heaven are found right smack here in the middle of this gathering of rock-solid Christ confessors, even if there are only two or three gathered in his name. And the church even has an office of the keys, the office of the holy ministry, where the keys are always at work for certain so that you might know and be certain that heaven is open to you when you repent of your sin and believe in Jesus for forgiveness. The keys of heaven belong to Jesus and to whom all authority in heaven and earth has been given to you. 
They do what he did for all on the cross. They bind sin and Satan, death and hell. They loose sinners from their guilt and shame. They free us to be the children of God and they swing wide open the gates of heaven. You are all in on this, built on this rock, baptized, believing and confessing Jesus together with Peter. Every baptism, every word of forgiveness spoken, every proclamation of Jesus, every communion which you eat and drink, Christ's body and blood, the keys of heaven are open. One final point. Did you notice that Jesus warned Peter and the rest not to tell anybody about the Christ? Don't panic. He's not talking to you here. You can tell anyone and everyone about Jesus, that he's the Christ, the Son of the living God. You can tell anyone that their sins are forgiven because Jesus died for them. The disciples just had to wait until Jesus died and rose again. Then the world would have rock-solid proof. There is nothing more sure and certain than Jesus. Jesus the Christ. Jesus the Son of the living God. Jesus the giver of the keys of heaven. And you, my dear baptized believers, confessing him as your solid rock, the Lord Jesus who saves you, you know what? You are blessed. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Now may the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and minds through faith to Christ Jesus, to life everlasting. Amen.